Hey, my name's Ashish. I'm so glad you're with us this morning. Would you join me in prayer uh, before we enter the word together? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for joy. Uh, we thank you for spaces to gather. Um, and we thank you for your word. And thank you that, Holy Spirit, you shape us to look more like Jesus. So, Lord, would you open up our eyes to see you? And like I prayed earlier, would you give us the courage to respond to what you're saying? We love you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, a month ago, my wife Anna and I got to fly to Oregon. Now, if you haven't had the opportunity to travel by plane, let me set the scene so that you know what to expect. So after you check your luggage, you need to go to your gate where your plane is waiting for you. But before you go to your gate, you have to pass through a security checkpoint. Now, the security checkpoint can be a little bit of a stressful situation, but it's just to make sure that everyone is safe and carrying the appropriate things on the plane. Now, while you all have the same goal in mind of getting to your gate, once you get to the security checkpoint, you are divided into lines. Now, the first line is devoted to those who have what's called clear. Everyone say, ooh, ah, clear. These are the kings and queens of the airport security lines. They are not walked, but they are ushered through security. And I can't confirm this, but I'm sure that they're greeted by flowers and food as soon as they get through the line. So you have the first line devoted to clear. The second line is devoted to those who have what's called TSA pre-check. Now, these aren't quite the kings and queens of the airport, but there is a certain status and trust that they share amongst each other. See, the people in TSA pre-check are like the cool kids of the airport. You want to be them, but you also secretly like, don't really like them. Like, oh, TSA pre-check. <laughs> now, if you're with TSA pre-check, you walk through practically no line. You put your bags on the conveyor belt, and they wave you through. But then there's a third line, and this is where Anna and I live. We are the commoners. We are the peasants. <laughs> Not only do we have to wait through a long, long line, but then we don't get waved through security. No, we have to take off our shoes. We have to take off our belts. We have to take off our sweatshirts. We have to take off the backpack. We have to take out the laptop. We have to take out the food. It is a hassle to get through security. All I want to do is get to my gate, but I feel like I have to jump through barriers and jump through hoops just to get there. Okay, that's really dramatic. Some of you know that's not actually what an airport is like. And I'm really grateful for the ways that the airport keeps us safe. I love those of you who have TSA pre-check. They're dear friends. But I wonder if seeking out belonging can feel like navigating through airport security. Where seeking out belonging, something that's already tough, can feel like we are climbing over barriers or jumping through hoops. In order to belong, you have to be in the right life stage, make the same amount of money, believe the right things, have the right phone, eat the same food, and let's not even get started on navigating people's calendars. Like, gone are the days where you can just spontaneously show up to something. I can hang out three Tuesdays from now at approximately 2.17 p.m. We can get it in the Google Calendar now. That's when I can hang out. 
So sometimes we experience belonging or experience barriers as we seek belonging with others. But worse yet, I think sometimes we put up those barriers, preventing others from seeking belonging with us. I know I have. Now, a quick side conversation this morning. Today, as I talk about barriers, barriers are different than boundaries. And boundaries are a whole other sermon. See, boundaries are created from places of health. Boundaries have the other person's needs in mind as well as my needs in mind. Boundaries can create sweet spaces of freedom. Boundaries are good. But barriers, on the other hand, are created from a scarcity mindset. They're done out of fear. Barriers have only my needs in mind and are put up at the expense of someone else. Barriers are a result of what Pastor Steph mentioned at the beginning of this series. That we all need belonging, but we don't actually want it. What we truly want is to belong to ourselves. And culture forms us to bolster these barriers. Culture trains us for individualism. It's more comfortable to seek my own preferences than deal with the preferences of someone else. And that's with people we like. What about the people we disagree with? The people who are different from us? The people who we don't get along with? Culture trains us to put up these barriers. Yet Jesus invites us into a new way of living. See, Jesus' love doesn't bolster barriers, but builds bridges. Jesus built a bridge for us to find belonging with him. And this morning, what I want us to reflect on is how Jesus then leads us to create spaces of belonging for others. To join God's transforming belonging love that is moving around us towards those that God has called us to. And so if there's one thing I want us to take from this morning, especially as we end this series... It's this, that Jesus' love invites us to find belonging in him and leads us to create spaces of belonging for others. It's both. Jesus' love invites us to find belonging in him and leads us to create spaces of belonging for others. And that's what our passage today is all about. So would you join me? You can use the Bibles in the pews in front of you or bring out your Bible. And if you would just like to hear the verse read out loud, I'll be reading it and the passage will be on the screen behind me. So this morning we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Now the letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Ephesus. But something unique about this letter was it wasn't just for the city of Ephesus, but it was circulated around the other cities around Ephesus. And when we read the letter of Ephesians, it's easy to see why. Ephesians is rich with content. I think if Ephesians were a food, Ephesians would be lasagna. Because lasagna is full of flavor and rich in substance. That's Ephesians, full of flavor and deep with substance. Now, a couple of contextual pieces that are helpful for our passage this morning. First, if the whole letter of Ephesians could be summed up in a phrase, it would be, but now. See, Ephesians is this massive before and after. Paul highlights this is who you were before Jesus, but now. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, this is who Jesus empowers you to be in your everyday spaces. 
And not just empowers you to be individually, but empowers you to be corporately as the church. This is who Jesus empowers you to be. You'll see this theme of but now in our passage this morning. And second, like most churches in the first century, the church in Ephesus was composed of two groups of people. There were the Jews and then the Gentiles. Now, the Jews are the people who were chosen by God. We sang earlier, God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant. Well, in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, we see how God picks this man, Abraham, and promises his descendants, the Israelites, that they will be a blessing to the whole world. We can read a lot of their story in what we call the Old Testament. And then we have the Gentiles. And this was anyone who was not ethnically Jewish. In the first century, the Gentiles were now welcomed into this promise that God had given Abraham because of what Jesus had accomplished through his death and resurrection. So in the Ephesian church, you had these two ethnic groups of people. But these two groups were very different. In fact, there was historical precedent for deep division and distrust between these two groups of people. And that created many barriers to belonging. Now, the last thing I'll say about this passage is that I believe that this passage encapsulates the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to the last book of Revelation. It's a beautiful passage. And so let's begin Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 12. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Remember that at that time you, or the Gentiles, were separate from Christ. Now, Christ is a term that you'll see throughout this passage, and if you're unfamiliar with that term, the name Christ means the Savior that was promised. And so whenever you see that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, that's the author saying this Jesus is the Savior that was promised. And so Paul says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, everyone say, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul starts with this before and after. At one point, the Gentiles were without knowledge of who God was, and thus in a state of hopelessness, without hope. But now. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, those who were far away have been brought near. Those without hope now have access to the deepest belonging a human can experience. A love that is steadfast. Where a relationship where they can know God and be known by God. And what I love about this is that Jesus doesn't stand far off and ask the people, okay, work your way to me, climb the barriers and jump through these hoops and then you'll reach me. Jesus moves towards them, and Jesus moves towards us. Now, years ago, I was taking care of some family friends' kids. They were three years old and five years old, and one of their favorite games to play was hide-and-seek. Anyone else know kids who love to play hide-and-seek? Thank you. Now, the goal of hide-and-seek is that someone counts, and then the other people go and hide, and you have to find those people. And because out of the three-year-old and five-year-old, I was the one who could confidently count to ten, thank you homeschooling, I was given the privilege of being the counter. Let's be real. No one likes being the counter. 
But here's the thing. The moment I finished counting and I yelled out, ready or not, here I come, I would hear this pitter-patter of feet. And the three-year-old would run to me and with joy in her face, she'd jump up and down and say, here I am, here I am, you found me, you found me. <laughs> now, that made our games very short. <laughs> but the image has always stood out to me. See, this is Jesus' love. Not a love that is hidden, but we serve a God who joyfully meets us where we are and says, here I am, here I am. You found me, you found me. Paul begins this passage with a deep truth, that true belonging is found in the arms of Jesus. And oh, we can look for it in peoples or in groups or careers or money or status, you name it, but our deepest desire for belonging can only be found in the arms of Jesus. And what joy to know that his arms are open wide. Paul says, you who were once far away have been brought near because of his love. Now, that's not where the passage ends. In fact, we go from a but now to an and now. And so Paul continues, Jesus' love has further implications. Paul says, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, out of the Jews and the Gentiles, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there were two groups of people in Paul's audience. You had the Jews, and then you had the Gentiles. And one of the biggest battles being faced was whether or not the Gentiles in the Jesus movement needed to observe some of the practices the Jewish followers of the Jesus movement had practiced historically. Paul refers to these practices as the law with its commands and regulations. Now, this included practices like eating kosher or being circumcised or going through cleansing rituals. And adherence to these laws was being used by both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, to define who was in and who was out. Now, the law, commands, and regulations weren't bad. In the Old Testament, we read that they were given by God through Moses to the people of Israel to set them apart. They had unique access to God, and obedience to the law enabled them to live in relationship with this loving God. Yet here's the radical nature of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. See, it's not their obedience that now sets them apart. It's Jesus' obedience that creates an entirely new people. And it's not their love that gave them access to God. It's Jesus' love that has made a way for everyone to have access to God. It's Jesus' love that invites them into peace. Deep, refining, restorative peace. It's Jesus' love that destroyed the dividing walls of hostility and empowered the first century Jews and Gentiles to not put up barriers, but actually live in relationship with one another. To create spaces of belonging together. And it would be hard. 
and we read about the tensions in many of the New Testament letters. We read about how the Gentiles and the Jewish people ostracize and clash with each other. But Jesus invited and empowered his followers to emulate his way of life, to build bridges towards each other instead of bolster barriers. And that's our invitation nowadays. I mean, we don't live in the first century, so we don't have some of the same issues, but we still do live in a world of deep division and distrust and disunity. And in this world today, Jesus invites us to move towards the other, to build bridges instead of bolster barriers. But Paul continues, almost a, but wait, there's more. See, the but now is followed by an and now, which is followed by a from now on. Any Greatest Showman fans out there, from now on. So Paul says in verse 19, he says, Consequently, because of everything that I just wrote, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, there are many illustrations that Paul uses to describe this new community. He describes the church as a household or describes them as citizens or a family on mission. But one of my favorite descriptions is in verse 21. It's on the screen here. In verse 21, it says, In Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. But to understand this profound image, we have to see this verse in context. See, the first time we read about the temple or a sanctuary is in the Old Testament, where one of Israel's kings, King Solomon, builds this temple. And it is a place defined by God's presence, a place of belonging. But I wonder if that was how the first century believers would describe the temple. Some scholars think that the image of the wall of hostility that Paul uses here was taken from a literal wall that was placed in the temple that divided the Jews from the Gentiles. In fact, if the Gentiles crossed that wall, they did so under the penalty of death. And so I wonder if the image of a temple brought to mind a place of exclusion, a place of pain carried out by both sides and division. But now, Jesus is the leader who restores all things. And the image of a temple moves from a place of exclusion and is restored back to a place where God's presence dwells, a place of belonging. And it's not a building as beautiful as the buildings are. Paul says it's a people. And not just any people, but a multi-ethnic, multi-generational group of people built on the foundation of Jesus. And so from now on, the church composed of both Jews and Gentiles, the people have a mission. And it's in their everyday spaces, in their local communities, they are now places where God's presence dwells. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, that can become a place of belonging. 
A place where they can reflect God's freedom. A place of healing and love and grace and truth. I mean, when we look at this whole passage, isn't this the whole story of the Bible? Isn't this the good news? That we were far off, but now Jesus' love has made a way for us to experience true belonging with him. And now Jesus' love destroys the barriers of hostility and has made a way for all of us to have access to God. And so from now on, Jesus empowers us as a people, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational group of people to create spaces of belonging for each other and for others. Jesus' love invites us to find belonging in him and leads us to create spaces of belonging for others. And so as we end our series on belonging, what does that mean for us today, especially as we head into our weeks? Yes, Jesus invites us to create spaces of belonging, but what does that actually mean? Well, in her book, The Next Worship, author Sandra von Upstel gives a description of what a multi-ethnic, multi-generational space of belonging means. And this description has changed the way that I view being a Jesus follower and has honestly changed the way I view participating in the church. When it comes to what a space of belonging should be, Sandra von Upstel describes it with these three things. A space of belonging should have hospitality, solidarity, and mutuality. Hospitality, I see you. Solidarity, I stand with you. And mutuality, I need you. Belonging first starts with hospitality. I see you. This moves beyond I physically see you to I deeply know you. Your story is welcomed here. It's moving from how are you doing to how are you really doing. Hospitality is the practice of being unhurried in our welcome and courageous in following up and continuing that relationship. Belonging has to involve a culture of hospitality. And second, belonging has to involve a culture of solidarity. I stand with you. Now, solidarity has to stem from hospitality because part of knowing someone is knowing what their heart beats for, knowing what they're passionate about. And solidarity means we're able to identify with them in the practices of lament and joy. We're able to join with them in empathetic grieving and rejoicing, to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Solidarity means we stay present even when that moves us out of our comfort zone. Now when I think of an example of solidarity, Mill City, I think of you. And I think of how this community walked with solidarity in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in 2020. In the middle of deep hurt and frustration and confusion, I saw our community not shy away, but step towards people. In the following unrest, I saw us as a church understand that we have a lot to learn, especially about the experience of living as a person of color in America. And solidarity moved us to the practices of repenting and lamenting and acting. Practices that have been core to Mill City even before 2020 and are still core today. Solidarity moved us to listen to people in the community. To passing out plates of food to neighbors. To partnering in prayer with other churches and pastors. 
And this still continues beyond many issues involving racial justice. Mill City, when I look at you, I see a people who are committed to saying, we will grieve with those who grieve, and we will rejoice with those who rejoice. This is solidarity. And so belonging involves hospitality and solidarity. But if it ends there, we're still missing one key piece. Belonging has to also include mutuality. I need you. Earlier this summer, I talked about the difference between projects of peace versus people of peace. And how it's really easy to love projects because it gives us a back door when things get uncomfortable. It's really easy to love projects because we can love them at a distance and choose to step towards them out of the goodness of our hearts when it's convenient for us. But God loves us too much to invite us to love projects. God invites us and empowers us to love people. And that's what mutuality is all about. Mutuality sees everyone as having something to bring to the table, everyone as having something to contribute. I need you. In fact, my understanding of God is incomplete without you. Mutuality is what Paul envisions when he talks about this new community or group of people or temple. If the church was just Jewish or Gentile believers, that would be a shame. The truest picture of who God is and the best way we can create spaces of belonging is by coming together and learning from each other. We need each other. And so when you think hospitality, solidarity, mutuality, are these three things true of your life? Are these three things true of the way that we live as a church? Hospitality, solidarity, mutuality. But doing these things isn't just clenching our fists, gritting our teeth and saying, okay, I'm going to be more hospitable. I'm going to walk with more solidarity. Where does it begin? Well, it begins with Ephesians 2 verses 20. Where Paul says, this temple, this sanctuary, this people is built on the foundation with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone was this building block that would set the trajectory of where the whole building was going. And our cornerstone has to be Jesus. And when we build our lives on the foundation of Jesus, we see a Savior who emptied himself for us and empowers us to empty ourselves for others. Empowers us to take ourselves out of the center. Now, this is scary. And many times I'm tempted to think that creating spaces of belonging, doesn't that mean putting myself at the center? My needs, my preferences, my priorities. But this actually leads us to start building up barriers out of a scarcity mindset that our needs won't be met. And soon we're left isolated and wondering, why am I not actually experiencing true belonging? And this is true of the church as well. We don't have to look far before we see examples of when comfort and ego and pride have been placed at the center. And it's disastrous. And if we're honest, the church sometimes looks less like that place of belonging that Paul talks about and more like that deep place of hurt and exclusion and division. But now, Jesus invites us as individuals and as Mill City into a new way of life. To take ourselves out of the center and build our lives on Jesus. 
And when we do, I believe we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to start creating spaces of belonging for others. And I don't know about you, but I want my life to be modeled after Jesus. I want my life to emulate his way of hospitality. The way that he sat with solidarity and he mourned with those who mourned and he rejoiced with those who rejoiced. The way that he walked with mutuality and invited others into the mission that God had given him. And so this week, two questions to take with us into our everyday spaces. First, where is Jesus inviting you to place him at the center? I mean, this whole summer, this has been where we need to start. When it comes to loving our neighbor, resting with God, seeking out belonging, where do we need to take ourselves out of the center and surrender that spot to Jesus' leadership? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's as you're teaching that student or caring for that patient or working on that project. Maybe it's in an interaction with a roommate or friend who is tough to love. Where is Jesus inviting you to receive his steadfast love for you? To let go of the worry and the fear, say you have no place at the center. And to return to a God who says with joy, here I am, here I am, you found me. So where is Jesus inviting you to place him at the center? And then second, once we surrender our lives to Jesus, we're empowered by his spirit to ask this next question. Who is Jesus inviting you to create a space of belonging for? To welcome with hospitality, to walk with solidarity, to live in mutuality. We serve a savior who empowers us to build bridges, not build up barriers. And so would we be people that create spaces of belonging for others, especially those who are different than us, especially those we disagree with? We're empowered by the Spirit in our temple, wherever we gather, wherever we go, a place of God's presence. And so as you look ahead to the fall and everything that's coming up, who is Jesus inviting you to create a space of belonging for? Maybe that's saying, hey, we're in a different life stage, but come on over for dinner. It's going to look messy. It's going to be chaotic, but my imperfection does not trump my call to create a space of belonging for you. Maybe it's reaching out to that friend who you've been waiting to say, hey, like, text me, call me, and they're doing nothing. Maybe it's taking that courageous step and saying, hey, I'm going to be the one that creates a space of belonging here. Maybe it's taking time to sit with someone who is different than you and listen to them. And not just listen to them, but learn from them. What do they have to teach me about who God is? So who is Jesus inviting you to create a space of belonging for? Jesus' love invites us to find belonging in him and then leads us to create spaces of belonging for others. I'm going to invite the band up. And as they come up, I just wanted to end with a final illustration. So a while ago, I went to dinner with a friend. It was actually one of our community members, Jesse. He's on the worship team sometime. And as we ordered, we looked for a place to sit, and it was one of those restaurants where they have those self-serving water stations. And so while Jesse was looking for a place to sit, I decided, oh, I'm going to go get myself some water, and then I'll go join him. And so when I walked up to the self-serve water station, I filled up my glass of water, and then I thought, you know what? I'm going to get a glass of water for Jesse, too. And so I filled up two glasses of water, 
And I brought them back to my table, and I was like, okay, where's Jesse? Now, unbeknownst to me, Jesse had found another water station and had thought of the exact same thing. And so all of a sudden, you had both of us sitting at this table with no food but four very full glasses of water. It was just this funny picture. Now, when it comes to belonging, a worry can be that if we take ourselves out of the center, there won't be enough to go around. But in the way of Jesus, when we seek to create spaces of belonging for others, that leads to spaces of abundance. And so next time, this is my example, next time when you go to a self-serve water station, would you grab two glasses of water? And when you grab two glasses of water for the person that you're with, would it be a reminder that Jesus' love has created a space of belonging for me? And now Jesus' love empowers me to create a space of belonging for others. When people consider Mill City, when they see us live in our neighborhoods, would we be known as people that don't just physically grab two glasses of water, but metaphorically grab two glasses of water because we know that with Jesus we won't run out. And at the end of the day, you get water, and that's good on a hot day. <laughs> but Jesus invites us to create spaces of belonging. We're empowered by his love to do that. And so would we be people that are known by that? So would you reflect on these questions? Where do I need to make Jesus the center of my life? Who is Jesus inviting me to build a bridge towards or to create a space of belonging for? Would you join us as we end our time in worship?